Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here in our respective coasts. Nice. I'm on the East Coast. You're on the West Coast. Let's call Indeed. the whole thing off. <laughs> uh, our good friends Julie and Steve are here with us, and we'll introduce them in a bit. But first, uh, I, yeah, I want to I want to check in with you, man. How are you doing? I'm I, well. We're I'm actually on the coast working on the history of .NET. Yeah, uh, it has uh, been interesting. I'm kind of taking a bunch of stuff apart and reassembling it. Mm. There is, it, you know what? History is complicated. It is. Like, I give me writing technical books any day of the week. This stuff is hard. Especially when you're I mean, writing history because you often include, you know, glimpses of current, the state of current things when you're talking about history. So, I imagine oh, yeah. the history is history, but it's when you put it in context of what's current and what's current changes. Now, you've got a lot well, of rewriting And, and to you're do. trying to make what's relevant in all of these different things. Mm -hmm. Plus, it's very forensic. You know, right. I have three versions from three different interviews of a meeting in 2006. <laughs> They're all different. Mm. And so, you, you, you know, you're not going to pick any one of them. You have to kind of build a composite and say, what do you think happened here that had a significant impact on behavior going forward? Uh, and that happens over and over and over again. Like, I've got many versions of the history from something like th I'm over 40 people interviewed wow. now, you know, it, and, and a hundred hours plus of interviews. Jeez. And it's just, it's a lot to assemble. And, uh, and I keep layering in more pieces and finding problems and having to, to reassemble it. I feel, you know what it feels like? It feels like spaghetti code. Yeah. You know, where every time I make an alteration, all the other stuff I just did, it's wrong now. <laughs> and I have to go back and fix it. What are the unit tests for a history book? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, did you include stories of you and me having scotch with Scott Guthrie in in uh, Scotland? Or was it England or wherever we were? He, yeah, I don't I, you know, know why you'd I, put that I, in there. but Yeah, the, it, I think one of the things <laughs> I want to do with this book, when I finally get the copy down, is I'll, I will voice the audiobook. But then I'll also make like a director's commentary version of the audio book where after each chapter, I then tell you stories about where that chapter came from and those kinds of tales. Yeah. You know, they, it, it, some of the weirdness that happened gathering this book, like, so there Guthrie and I were at the urinals peeing yeah. and I said, <laughs> and he said, do you talk about this stuff at urinals all the time? I'm like, no, no, not really. <laughs> It's funny. But yeah. Uh, you know, there's so many tales like that that I think would be fun to do later. And I've kept all of those notes. That's great. But I, I got to get the main book done yeah, first. Like yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's the 20th anniversary of .NET shipping is February of 2022. Yeah. And it, it's I, I really need to be then. done by then. Yeah. I got to be done by then. So, it's just, I'm just cr grinding away. I have also put a couple new products on the Music to Code by website. Um, people nice. are asking for Wave versions and FLAC versions. Interesting. So I have both of those up at musictocodeby.net. And uh, you know what that means is they're including you in their primary playing systems. Yeah. It's not just a an aside thing, but it's like I want you as part of my overall audio system. It's a huge compliment. I think so that too. When they start caring about format. And especially because, you know, people know the difference between MP3s and, you know, lossless uh audio yeah. codecs like Wave and Flack. So that's good. Yeah. That's good. It's really cool. Hey, I got something utterly fascinating for Better Know a Framework, so roll the crazy music. Awesome. All right, dude. What do you got? Well, it's OpenAI Codex, and there's a link to this. You can Google it if you want, but if you go to 1754.pwop.me, 
you'll see this uh, unbelievable video of uh, somebody essentially building a game, uh, a web-based game, uh, with natural language. And it's blowing my mind. I mean, he basically He's says, typing out the description of what he wants things to do in the game. And then code gets spewed in another window. But you see the game going. And he looks like he's building asteroids. Yeah, he's basically. he's basically... He, he started with a picture of an asteroid. He says, go get this asteroid picture. And then put it in a UR... Put the URL to it in, uh, you know, in there. And then, you know, make it uh, circularly cropped, which is interesting. So... Then it's got a circle around it, you know, the border radius. And then he said, animate it to bounce back and forth between uh, the the left and the right wall. And he's telling it, you know, go half the speed. Uh, and then he's got another picture of an asteroid bouncing around randomly on all four walls. And then he says every time it collides, uh, you know, display a little thing. And he's keeping score, but he's just basically telling the system what to do. And it's writing the code. And it's keeping track of all this stuff, too. Because at the end, he says, um, put the rules of the game in the in the lower left in 40-point font white. And it basically came up with the rules of the game. <laughs> nice. And then he said, create, a, really create a title for this game and put it in the top right, having to do with avoiding the asteroid. And it did. Yeah. It's pretty you cool. Know, the the demo I want is a sh I take a picture of a form and I say make this form electronic. I think that's right? already like, there. Yeah, but it's a, you know making asteroids isn't going to change the world. But True. automating forms over data apps more than they already are. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Do you remember? Uh, I can't remember what episode it was or even what year it was, but we were talking about this stuff and. I said, you know, I, I, there's going to come a day, I think, I don't know when, but when you can just walk up to a computer and have a conversation with it and, uh, and it will spit out an application that you want. And uh, while this is a demo and it is a game, the, the, the base of it is um, the, the language processing is GPT-3. Right, which is yeah, uh, which is the sort of best out there right yeah, now. Yeah, it's the best out there, and it, mm. its training data contains both natural language and billions of lines of source code from publicly available sources, including GitHub uh, repositories. But but it'll also work with uh, over a dozen languages like JavaScript, Go, Perl, PHP, Ruby, Swift, TypeScript, Shell. I don't see C sharp in there anywhere, but you know that's coming, I suppose. Somebody hasn't done it already. Yeah, be interesting to see where they go with this ultimately. But uh, OpenAI groups a serious group, big big deal. GPT three is one of the best. Like you're you're seeing the sort of leading edge of what's possible. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it progresses. It's just pretty freaking unbelievable, and I encourage everybody to check it out. Now, that's what I got. Who's talking to us today? Well, we have two guests today, so I thought I'd read two comments. More importantly, because the last time we had them together, which was. Uh, talk we did about DDD with, with Julie and Steve. It was 2015 and that's a long time ago. So let's, they've been on more than once since then. So let me grab a show, uh, a comment off of show 1724. Okay. So that's the one we did with Julie back in January of 2021 about EF Core 5. 
Uh, and this particular comment's kind of fun one. This is from Bob Crowley, who says, well, it's been a Julie kind of day, and I've had those. <laughs> uh, first, I saw her offering up Commodore discs on Twitter. This is like six, seven months ago. <laughs> then I see Julie in my mailbox in the form of a Code Magazine article. Mm. And then I queue up a .NET Rocks and hear about EF Core. That's not bad. She gets I around. was especially pleased to hear you all agree that it's okay to use stored procedures, views as appropriate. It does seem that people think that if you're using Entity Framework, they have no choice but to cram everything into a link query. It's all, it's all just SQL at the un, at the bottom there. And speaking of conferences, let's hope the Vermont Code Camp is able to make a comeback this year. Yeah. Are they going to be able to, Jules? Are you going to be able to do We're one in 2021? Not doing it again this year. No, not no. this year. It's, Bob it's a, still has a bit spoken too at our code camp a number of times. He's wonderful. He actually, he's so meta. He camps out. Well, he's done it in the past. He camps out for the code camp. Wow. Like he, oh, I love it. Like, Just to right, be that With meta. a tent in a local campground on the lake <laughs> and has <laughs> camped out. <laughs> For a code camp. Okay, Bob, for your, your meta self needs a, a music to code by. So yeah. a copy of music to code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of music to code by, write a comment on the website at dot rocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of music to code by. And we get, I get to do that again because I'm going to read another comment. Yeah. And this one's from 1695. So just a little while back. That's July of 2020. Uh, when we were talking to Steve about ASP.NET Core API endpoints, which was a really great set of thinking about organizing mm -hmm. MVC apps. I really appreciated yep. that, all of that. And apparently, so did Christian, who said, this is crazy. I was just thinking about how to organize an MVC project using feature folders, and the show comes out. Perfect timing. How do you guys do that? Yeah. We get really lucky sometimes, Christian. That's all. There's nothing more to it than that. And I got to love Steve. I find his ideas really resonate with me. And I'll definitely take a look at his API endpoints project. Thanks for the show. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, so nothing but love for Steve because he was clearly on the ball as a guy who's feeling the pain mm -hmm. of an MVC project of any size whatsoever. And uh, Christian was there as well. And that's from about a year ago. So uh, thank you for your comment, Christian. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we can't, we read every comment there as well. And if I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And for all of those who think that I recorded that once and just play it back over and over again. No. It's not true. It's not true. I do it's it every lie. time. And it, it's fun when we do it live <laughs> in front of an audience and they see me do that riff straight. Right. And then you see the look on people's faces like, he actually just says that stuff. It's like, yeah, you know why? I said it like 2,000 times. Eventually, you get good at it. Well, hey, if you want to follow us on Twitter, he's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Uh, send us a tweet, but make sure you turn off entity tracking first. Otherwise, it's going to get all higgledy-piggledy. <laughs> but um bum bum Nice. All right. I'm going to give you guys a formal introduction. Julie Lerman is a Microsoft Regional Director, Docker Captain, and longtime Microsoft MVP, who now counts her years as a coder in decades. She makes her living as a coach and consultant to software teams around the world. You can find Julie presenting on any framework, DDD, and other topics at user groups and conferences around the world. Julie blogs at thedatafarm.com slash blog. She's also the author of the highly acclaimed Programming Entity Framework books. Also, uh, the MSDN Magazine Data Points column, back when that was awesome. And 
there. <laughs> and also popular videos on Pluralsight.com. Follow Julie on Twitter at Julie Lerman. And Steve Smith at Ardalis is an entrepreneur and software developer with a passion for building quality software as effectively as possible. He provides mentoring and training workshops for teams with a desire to improve. Steve has been recognized as a Microsoft MVP for way more than 10 consecutive years and is a frequent speaker at software developer conferences and events. He enjoys helping others write maintainable, testable applications using Microsoft's developer tools. And connect with Steve at ardallis.com. Welcome, Steve and Julie. Thanks. Hello, hello. First of all, did you guys watch that video of... Uh, yes. Yeah, that oh, was amazing. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't even believe it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And at first, Carl, I thought it was yours. This I was like, oh, my oh, really? God. I would not be surprised because, as I had said when we were watching it earlier, you are, and, and Steve is the same, um, somebody who sees a problem and instead of just like, you know, going to the next thing yeah. or hoping somebody fixes it, actually says, you know, rolls up your sleeve and... Says, let's, I could do something about that. Yeah, that, that thing, however, is way above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, that, I, I mean, just watching the video and you seeing, you know, the person's typing in what they want, but they're typing it in just natural, well, English, mm. natural, natural English language. sentences. And, and then you see on this, uh, so on the, on the side, you see all this JavaScript going, it's just generating JavaScript. And in the center, you see the actual effects of it all. It's just it like, it, it just keeps going and going. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Well, and it says right on the homepage, this is the engine that runs GitHub Copilot. So it, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously going to be have a, a .NET incarnations if it's going to be running the GitHub Copilot mm. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll see more and more impacts of AI on how we write code in the next few years. I'm looking forward to it. I thought Blazor was productive. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it is interesting to think about different, that sort of different levels of productivity. Yeah. And, and what that actually means. Even if, uh, what I really appreciate about that demo more than anything is as you're saying the words, it's writing the code in front of you and you can look at the code. Right. Like to me, that's the except big it's thing flying is, by too quickly. Yeah, there is that. Yeah. It's, 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 but it also but makes, the fact that the code is there. It's no, it's not voodoo. It's just code. Yeah. It also makes me think back to when Kathleen Dollard and and others as well. But this code generation was a big thing for her, a big topic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and she always said code generation is the future. And yeah. this is just a new, you know, because we're in this future where AI is, it's just this blend of the AI and the code generation. But, you yeah. know, she was talking about this, you know, without AI, she was talking about this decades ago, She's writing a whole big book. Yeah, yeah. Kathleen is definitely, uh, you know, thought of things way before before they were uh, realized. Um, and that's what I like about uh, interviewing all these brilliant people over the years. Now we're actually seeing some of these predictions coming true. Yeah. The thing that they make a point about, which I think segues nicely into domain-driven design, uh, is that they, they break programming down into two parts. It's deciding what the program should do mm. and then figuring out how to make it actually do it. And the second part requires knowledge about specific APIs or implementations or this library or that library. And they make the point that, you know, that's really 
not the fun part of programming, right? but it's the part that AI is really good at. So yeah. they automate that mm-hmm. part and let you focus on what it should do, not not the nitty-gritty details of how it does it. That is probably the, wow, I didn't even make those connections, but you're right. That is a demo of the purest domain-driven design programming that you can get. <laughs> it's yeah. literally talking all about the domain. Move the spaceship here, subtract five points when it collides with the asteroid, etc. Very cool. Yeah, it's you totally separated the plumbing from the domain yep. of uh, of the process. So, uh, and you make a point. I don't know if you said this on the show, but you made a point earlier about it's when it produces that list of rules. Yeah, right. And that's you know the really chilling thing is that often as a domain expert, you're rattling off all of these things you know yep. as quickly as possible. You may or may not have organized them well. Yeah. Like the fact that they kept throwing in the rules around collision and so forth between the spaceship and the asteroid. And then, but it, eventually when you ask for a consolidated set of rules, they're organized in a sense. Yeah. They, it sort of consolidated that. That speaks to a whole other set of problems. And it was able to determine the difference between that kind of a rule and, and you know, change the the font should be smaller. Right. Right. right? That it should, al- although in that case, you know, it depends on what kind of rules, right? Is that a business mm-hmm. rule or is that a UI rule, right? But it's separating, it, it's recognizing the differences between between those. Yeah, it's... Right, the implementation details. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, and distinctions of concern, which, you know, we've all dealt with often when people are struggling looking at a piece of software that we're making for them with those larger domain concepts, they end up focusing on font colors. <laughs> well, and you could see taking this and, and using it to uh, other parts of programming too. I mean, obviously, like we've we've had, uh, and Visual Studio has even shipped things that will automatically generate unit tests, for example. But right. automatically generated unit tests for just random code uh, tend to not be very effective in my experience. Yeah. But here you could guide those tests and instead of having to know all the ins and out of how to write good unit tests or how to mock things or other advanced techniques, you could just tell this AI thing, Hey, verify that, you know, when the boundaries are out of, out of range that I get this exception or, or whatever. Right. And, and you could just right. list off your test cases as the rules and maybe it generates all those tests. Yeah. You're speaking to the next level, which is now the system could be asking for tests as starting with, Hey, what are the boundaries of say this movement? And, and then turn those into tests. Like you're really thinking the next level as you start to explore a domain to have a guidance tool that's sort of saying, what are the edges of all of these yeah. things? And so, and often you're not going to know the answer and you need to hunt that down. It's actually relevant. Yeah. You know, it's like, what's a reasonable value there? Another perspective on that is that as you're just without that guidance, as you're just mm-hmm. rattling things off, which, you know, how many times have you sat down with clients and, you know, you've got all these people in the room and they're all rattling things off. This is capturing all those things right. and right. organizing them. Yeah. So you don't even have to force people into that organized thinking. You can, I mean, this is what I love about event storming, especially the, you know, the big picture chaotic stuff where you just tell everybody just you know, throw it all out there. Like, don't, don't even worry. Just put all yeah, the ideas no out holes. there. You don't have to, don't, you don't have to be organized. Don't think about buckets. Don't think about, you know, whose job it is or timelines or anything. Just give me all your stuff. Just put it all out there. And, and the, having the AI, you know, <laughs> next level, right? Having the AI organize all of that. 
Uh, yeah. So I, I found out about this from Brian McKay, who's one of my uh, AppVNX guys. Uh, and he says, and he allowed, he's telling me I can quote him here. He says, I think it shows where this huge AI push we're seeing is going. An era of human slash AI collaboration tools like centaurs and chess, which is where humans and chess engines work together and are stronger together, at least historically, than either could be alone. And he's been playing with uh, GPT-3, which Codex is based on, and he said it gave him the same feeling. I realized it can generate amazing content, but it needs human supervision or really human collaboration. He goes on to say... Hmm. I set it up to generate acts for a story and then bullet points within those acts, dialogue, characters. And it was good. I mean, really good. It just needs a human to cherry pick the best responses. It has a way of misunderstanding context that means it can't just do this alone. And some people are outraged about it and he finds it exciting. Hmm. Outraged. <laughs> Terrified. Terrified. Yeah. yeah. It needs it needs yeah. human supervision so it doesn't turn into Skynet. That's that's the thing. Well, and you can see yeah. in that demo video that um it, he made it change the term asteroids with the asteroid because there was only one. Right? That little yeah. things like that. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's not perfect, but it's, it's not perfect, but more than 80% of the way there on this uh damn. on the demo that they've got at least. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't do AI. Um, it's hard enough to do Julie I, <laughs> but <laughs> oh, that's good. We should copyright that. Um, <laughs> Julie, <laughs> Julie, Julie, Julie I, um, but I know at least when I've attended sessions or read stuff, the one, like the big point that I take away is that AI is there to do the easy repetitive stuff. Yeah. And, and so that you can spend your time doing the creative thinking. Mm -hmm. They're just tools, right? These are just more tools. And they, the tool doesn't do anything without you. Uh, and the, uh, and all tools were meant to magnify your abilities to do more in less time, yeah. right? It's just, you know, and I've used this line for many, many years, right? They can amplify your intelligence or they can amplify your stupidity. <laughs> you just have to be careful which one you do. <laughs> Wow, almost to the halfway point, and we haven't even asked uh, our guests what they think of uh, DDD in 2021, which I think is our topic <laughs> today. But weirdly, but we have been talking about domains. We certainly have. Like, your, yeah, your example, such a your, that that demo is such a good example of thinking about domain only. That's right. Yeah. So uh, maybe we'll take a break now. Is that okay? We'll take a break now, and then we'll come back. And we'll be right back after this brief but very important message. You know, whether you think about it or not, every time you go online, you take a risk. And we think our connection probably won't be interrupted by hackers. Our data probably won't be used against us. But using the internet without ExpressVPN, that's like driving without car insurance. Why would you take that risk? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data whether it's your passwords, financial details, or whatever. And it doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware. A smart 12-year-old could do it. And your data is valuable. 
Hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling personal info on the dark web. ExpressVPN acts as online insurance. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so hackers can't steal your personal data. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. And ExpressVPN is simple to use on all your devices. Just fire up the app and click one button to get protected. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com .net. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash D-O-T-N-E-T. And you can get an extra three months for free. expressvpn.com slash .net. And we're back. We're talking about DDD. And within the context of some new tech, we're just uh, seeing for the first time here. And uh, I'm sure it's got Steve and Julie uh, wanting to talk about how that fits into what they were really going to talk about today, which is, in fact, DDD. So, Julie, you were saying something over the break there. I was complimenting Steve at what was almost a segue of just, just seeing through, uh, you know, seeing kind of the bigger picture right. of, of that application and, and how it really highlights separating domain from, yeah. from implementation. Yeah, I agree. That, that part's really hard for a lot of programmers because a lot of programmers, mm -hmm. they think programming is all of that stitched together. Mm -hmm. Like making the computer do what I want by calling this library to make it do this specific query or, or this command. That's the thing. Like it, it's one thing. Um, and it, it takes for a lot of folks, it's difficult to, to tease those apart yeah. and, and think about them as, as two separate concepts. But mm. I think when you do, it, it opens up a lot of opportunities, especially the ability to, to swap out different implementations of things. Right. And I think when I started really digging into DDD, especially, you know, this entity framework and DDD, which doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because domain-driven design is all about not worrying about data persistence. Mm. But I was always interested to see how closely entity framework maps to, you know, if we're designing things in the, in that way, uh, in the way that we learn in dom in domain driven design and how well, you know, how far entity framework gets you without you having to, uh, get in and, and do some customization. Um, and, and I, th I know it confused a lot of people because I was very focused on, you know, domain driven design is, Two big pieces, strategic design, you know, really strategizing, understanding the domain and really it, it, strategy, right? It is all about strategy and then tactical, which is how do we make it happen? Right. How do we actually implement right. it? And I was so focused always on that implementation stuff with entity framework right. that, uh, you know, I've got, a, a, there was a lot of people who are like, Hey, you know, it's more than that. Right. I'm like, well, I know that, but this is the part that I'm trying to help people with. But so now I, even if I'm talking about specifically, you know, how's entity framework doing with all this mapping, I always start making sure that people understand it is not just about the tactical, how important strategic is. And I love when I get to do talks or, or training where I'm more focused on making sure people understand about this strategic and then i just dip in a little look at some of the tactical stuff right right 
Yeah, well, the thing that really made Entity Framework start to be interesting to me, which was a long time ago now, because they've had this feature for probably 10 years, um, is when they started to support code first and made it so that you could just focus on the domain and really keep the database implementation details or whatever the persistence medium might have been more at arm's length and, and not necessarily have to worry about it. And, and once, you know, uh, Entity Framework and, and other similar tools, you know, started supporting you know, built-in support for an in-memory model, it was like, great, well, I can just build my app and test things out and experiment and see what kind of works as my model. Right. And I don't even have to worry about the database. I might not have a database for the first six months of development. And then, you know, mm-hmm. eventually, yeah, I'll probably, when I go to production, I'll need to have somewhere to store stuff. But that's <laughs> that's just a, you know, you <laughs> yeah, know side concern. It's your classic you know? repository. Exactly. I've, I've got lots of choice there. I don't need to lock myself in on the first day. Yep. Right. And And you're allowed to change your mind as well. Like, you don't have to make that decision at the beginning. You know, what I like about that experimentation is you're also going to start to get a view of the shape of the data that comes out of the system and say, hey, like this piece is really high velocity and busy. We maybe want to architect this differently in the implementation side of things so that it performs well or this data is extremely valuable and needs to be secured. Like trying to make those decisions at the beginning are really hard. You don't know where that data is going to appear. So being able to, to delay that that implementation decision, I think, is really powerful. Definitely. And, and probably all of us have been involved in a, in a migration of production data from one database to another, whether it's, you know, the same technology or not, just, just literally moving data from one place to another that isn't a one for one schema. That's hard. That's expensive. Yeah. That requires a lot of effort and, and oversight and testing. Um, and so it's, it's an expensive decision to change your mind on later. Uh, and mm-hmm. so for expensive decisions like that, one of the principles from lean software development, uh, is that you should defer those decisions to the last responsible moment. Um, and that's what, you know, keeping those interfaces and abstractions in place for as long as possible lets you do. Right. And, and yet not impair you to go forward, right? Like there's, uh, there's another side effect to delaying those decisions, which is how does this ripple back through the application later? But I guess that's part of this architectural approach to DDD is minimizing the impact of those, those, those decisions. Yeah. And, and keeping or planning as part of the strategy, really having a good idea of all that flow, you know, message mm-hmm. flow, um, and things are upstream or downstream. And, you know, that, I mean, you can solve all those problems up front, still not worrying about how you're going to persist any of it. Right. Right. Cause it's just about the communication. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, ultimately again, now you're working from real data because you can see what information your machine is is generating. I just had this conversation on Twitter too, which is like, you know, if you if the data comes out as a blob of objects, storing that blob's not a bad thing. It's kind of the truth, yeah. actually. Yeah. The only reason you take it apart is to do reporting on it, and you don't have to make the customer wait for that. And that's a separate implementation. You can then pull the blobs apart later. And, and disperse it into rows and columns as whatever makes you yep. happy. Optimize for reporting. Right. Event sourcing really gives you a lot of leg up for that approach, for, for mm-hmm. being able to do that. Um, and I don't want to be presumptuous. Event sourcing is where instead of persisting the state, like the persisting actual values, you're persisting what happened and, and right. doing it in a way. And then you can always rebuild that or push it out to a reporting, you know, database that you're using to report against in, 
a schema and a structure that makes it easy for the reporting, right? And, and so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, and it was funny because when I first started learning about how event sourcing really works, I had also only recently learned about how SQL Server actually does. That's how SQL Server works. It like gathers up all the thing, you know, insert, delete, update, whatever, what happened. And then when there's a pause, <laughs> right, it goes, okay, now I'm going to push all that state into the actual tables. Right. One of the nice things about event sourcing is that it doesn't lose information and the way I think of it is is just like I think about a Git repository where mm-hmm. it has a, a log of all the change sets of all the things that have ever happened. So if you want to know what was the state of my system, you know, three and a half months ago, right? You can just do that and just pull out that commit and there it is. That's the system. Whereas if you just do CRUD directly on tables, like most systems do that use a, a relational database, you know, if you want to know what that column's value was, you know, three and a half months ago, good luck. Unless right. you, you know, maybe you have a, a lot of backups and you can go to that day's backup or, you know, you've got some activity log table that you could try and, you know, figure out what, what that value might have been. Um, but with event sourcing, it's trivial. Uh, it, that's what it's built for is to be able to see what stuff was at any point in time. Just as an aside, has nothing to do with domain driven design, but I literally just learned about temporal tables. In, in like SQL Server and some other databases where you're doing exactly that. Every time you make an update to the state, it saves, you know, it's, it saves what that state was beforehand with dates. And I learned about that because EF Core 6 is going to, uh, it will support temporal tables now, but I, I don't want to. <laughs> sidetrack, but <laughs> it was just, I actually just learned that because I knew, you know, and the big question about how that compares to event sourcing, which is very, very different. It's still all about state. I first learned about event sourcing in the 90s when I was working on a billing system for medical software. And um, they, they had a very specific uh, legal reason that you couldn't update a ledger entry. Because, huh. uh, you know, fraud or whatever. So, right. if you have – it's like a bank statement, you know, you see. Yep. Mm-hmm. You can only add to it. Yeah. Yeah, only inserts. Right. Yep. You, you, and, you can and subtract that values. Uh, you could, could subtract a number. You can add a number. But each one of those is a different uh, entry. And, and it all goes back to aligning beautifully with DDD because we, we spend a lot of time thinking about events. Mm. And and mm-hmm. and behavior, not about state. Right. Now, at some point in this show, we should probably mention it. We have a, a new DDD course that just was released a couple months ago. Oh wow! Uh, on Pluralsight, and uh, it's a it's a revised version of of one that we we published uh, probably the last time we were on your show together huh. back in 2014. It ca- uh, the course right. came out, um, and and so now we fully updated it for .NET five and and the latest and greatest of everything. So excellent. Steve dubbed it the second edition, which is, you know, like we do with books, yeah. which actually makes a lot of sense. So the question is, was it just an update in terms of the implementation details? Or do you look at DDD differently now, you know, five, six years on? Uh, both, I think. Uh, we, we went through the whole thing. We probably spent as many hours on the on this revised version as we did on the on the original, which was not a, hmm. a small amount. Um, and, we, and we, you know, adjusted and updated literally every slide based on our, our newer understanding and experience with domain driven design. Wouldn't you say, Julie? Oh yeah. Yeah. Because your, your comprehension and experience is always evolving, right? So our perspective has changed. And what's also interesting is um, through the DDD community, there's been a lot of 
new thinking, like, you know, so mm-hmm. the DDD community has been really building on top of those ideas. Um, so we've learned a lot from that too. So it was great to be able to share a lot of that work that's going on. What are some of those things that have changed? Event storming is, is one that we, we yeah. focus on a little bit more than we did seven, eight years ago. What's that? Good, Julie. Oh, oh. Uh, so event storming actually bubbled out of the brilliant brain of Alberto Brandolini. Uh, he is really, yeah, he is, <laughs> he is so, uh, engaging and funny. Um, you know, maybe, maybe somebody fun to interview, um, right down to his gorgeous Italian accent. Um, so he was, he was, going in to do some consulting with a client and there's all the people sitting around the table all just going blah 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 like everybody's trying to get their word in and he just couldn't get an understanding of what how the business worked he was just trying to understand what problems they were trying to solve and how the business worked so the next day he walked in the room with these big rolls of paper uh, and taped them up on the wall and piles and piles of post-it notes and said okay everybody just write down what you're trying to tell me but write it in the form of a past tense thing that happened an event on these stickies and just stick them up on the wall. And that's where we're going to start. And that's what I was talking about before, um, how that, uh, that AI application was taking all the information you were giving it, you know, you could organize it after the fact, right? And that's mm-hmm. exactly what you do. So that's, that's the beginning of event storming, but it is so exciting. It's a little harder to do it remotely and virtually. It's yeah. just an amazing thing uh, to be in a room with, you know, 15 or 20 people, key stakeholders, um, not just programmers, right? You got customer service, you got the head of accounting, you've got the business mm-hmm. people, right. you've got product owners, um, learning from each other, collaborating. Yeah, InfoSec, operations, like all people that are going to be impacted by this app. Yeah, I was yeah. I was part yeah. of one of his workshops just a couple months ago with a client of mine actually, and it was really awesome to see because um, the the first day it's it's what Julie just described where there's a lot of chaos and he he sets uh, expectations that that's that's how it's going to be don't be right. don't be put off right. um, and then the chaos kind of gets organized but there's very little technical uh, talk going on no one's talking about well how are we going to architect this and what are, how are we going to model this in a class or that's it's it's much more strategic than that and the really cool part. Mm-hmm is when there's different parts of the company that owns the, this process or this product and, and they're learning from each other, which, which oh, I, yeah. I guess yes. happens all the time. Yes. Like, it's know, amazing. Someone in one product group is like, well, this, this happens and then that causes this to happen. And somebody else will be like, no, no, not quite like that. No, really this other stuff happens first along the way. And they're like, really? And, and they, they, they never knew. Like, yeah, right, yeah, you guys right. really try talking to each other more, you know, like, but that's yeah, you yeah. Know, big <laughs> oh, organizations. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I, and I've had, I've facilitated, uh, event storming workshops for a number of companies. And, uh, I, I remember one where it was a, you know, you've got different teams, right? And there, there's stuff getting passed along or data, you know, coming, flowing through the systems. And, and they they were, had never really been in the same room before. Mm-hmm. And one of the teams was talking about the difficulty of, you know, this, all this X, this process they have to do with the data, blah, 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 because, right. you know, they had to do this transformation. And the team that was kind of, uh, upstream of them, two levels upstream of them said, whoa, wait, that the way we're formatting the data is giving that problem to you. We can 
format, you know, we can format the messages mm. differently. Yeah, we're years, not emotional about that. Like, it's a lot of work for us, and too. Years <laughs> this had been going yeah. on. And it was so exciting to be part of that, like, and to have enabled that and facilitated that. Yeah, create an environment where it's acceptable even to have those conversations. But I also think one of the things that happens when you put all those things together is there are emergent relationships on those post-it notes where it's like, hey, this thing that both of you are doing, an awful lot of it's duplicated. Like we could consolidate this and make a simpler flow. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, it, you know, having, having somebody from the outside. Yeah. Doing this to be really objective and also deal with kind of the politics. Yeah. Because if mm-hmm. you work there, you know, you're going to kowtow to. The, you know, upper people, right? So just keep people yeah. on track um, of, of, you know, not lose sight of the big picture. Yeah. 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 But, um, yeah, like, yeah. And, and it's watching Alberto w- with his intuition also, uh, do this is, you know, the things he sees that, you know, nobody else is seeing. It, it's just, it's really amazing and educational. What? That, that environment, that storming environment is works for some people, but you know, an experienced moderator of that is going to see the person in the corner that isn't talking, that knows some important things inevitably and, uh, and get those things out on the table. And, and, and that's and where so in person is so nice because you can usually tell by looking at their expression that yeah. they've got something they yeah, want to right. say. And that's really hard yeah, yeah. to do virtually, but, but it's hard I mean, to do virtually. You, virtually we can make it work and we have to make it work in the current state of the world, but. You know, in person is 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 nice. Well, yeah, yeah, I would think the the virtual solution to that is make sure there's plenty of back channels so that mm-hmm. the yep. the person who's not prepared to speak up but could type to you that you could start to give air to those things. Like there's workarounds for that, but I'm with you. Like I've certainly had the experience of the quiet guy in the room actually makes a whole lot of this place run. I just rolled my and, eyes and is not going to speak. I just up rolled my eyes and looked up at the ceiling in disbelief and Julie looked at me like what <laughs> it's kind of kind of proving your point there yeah you know it's uh, and it's part part of that uh, whole process is uh, the biggest problem i would have with with event storming is everybody in the room like that's it's a challenge it to is, get everybody is. in yeah. the room if you got to convince upper management it's worth their time and that's the biggest challenge yeah. so you wouldn't um, recommend the per for hour in that room is not so trivial. steve right. you wouldn't recommend right. your ipad on a stick with wheels yeah no <laughs> <laughs> well i actually uh, right did, it, with that. <laughs> did it at a, a fairly large company and uh we told like the cto came in uh, this is a huge multinational company the cto came in and we just said just stay for five minutes you don't have to don't have to stay but just come and see what it is we're doing he stayed for the whole time and Mm. then by the end of my week there i'd also done some uh, ddd training i was doing all kinds of stuff but as working with mostly particular team by the end of the week that cto said we are going to do event storming on every new project that comes along well done, hmm. you. Yeah, yeah, I was like my mic, my <laughs> biggest mic drop moment ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah you all been great. Try the fish, right? But he go. saw it. He saw it, and he got it. You know, he he yeah. got the power of it. So, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. this and event storming is something that has you know bubbled out 
bubbled up out of the DDD community, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, not uh, a one-to-one relationship, right? right. I mean, is, is there any? Yeah, and, there, and there's been yeah. some other things, like, uh, since since our original course that, that we give more emphasis to uh, as well, like microservices. Micro- nobody was really mm-hmm. talking too much about microservices eight years ago. Um, but now you, you can't avoid them. Like they're, everyone wants to talk about microservices. Right. Uh, and there's, there's, you can apply DDD really well to microservices, it turns out. And so we, we spend some time on that and, and some other patterns and other things that have, you know, sort of trends in the industry that, that we're addressing. I mean, on one hand, we're talking domain and don't worry about implementation. I mean, microservices to me seems to be an implementation. I would also think cloud in general does have an impact on implementation to some degree. It's got to be part of the domain thinking too. Sure. Yeah. Well, well one of the key concepts in domain-driven design is, is bounded contexts, which is, mm-hmm. you know, an, an area in which cert- a certain model makes sense. Uh, and it's bounded so that it doesn't get corrupted by other things it has to work with, like the cloud or like a database or, you know, uh, like another bounded context. Microservices um, were made microservices for that should be like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, each microservice doesn't have to be a bounded context. You know, you might have a bounded context with a few microservices in it sometimes. It doesn't have to be one-to-one. Mm. But you can kind of really quickly get that, hey, that sounds a lot like one of the principles we should be using as we think about our microservices. Right. A lot of the strategic design then help, you know, helps you get there. But you do the strategic design. You don't say, okay, we want to build microservices. How are we going to do it? You do the strategic design and then you say, these things that we've come up here, these would work really well as microservices as we're, as we're implementing. You know, them. The, because of the state of technology and what we can do, we, we are now spending a lot more time on those designs and not worrying about implementation. Because every once in a while, somebody says, Hey, is it possible that we can? And I cut them off. Yes. Yes, it's possible. <laughs> the question is how, how expensive will it be? How long will it anything take? Anything is possible. I, I haven't seen anything that any business software needs that isn't possible in, in, you know, the last five years. Well, I'm glad you said business software because I remember a day way back when some famous musician came to you and said, we want to oh, yeah. <laughs> build music true. from different yes, places. The, and you said the internet will not support it yet. It does now, though. The ca- well, maybe. The caveat is within the laws of physics, okay? Yes. <laughs> you cannot beat the speed you of cannot light. cannot beat the speed of light, yes. <laughs> yeah. That, it's going to win. It's not just a good <laughs> idea. It's the law. Yeah, here you go. It's a, and it's a real law. It's like, right. listen, this is how fast stuff can move at, at optimal rates. Every, in reality, every experience will be slower. Right. Than but that. essentially, those questions, they don't ask those questions anymore. Is it possible? Mm-hmm. You know? right. Just how much will it cost? Yeah. And yeah. How quickly it, can yeah. you get it done? The, it, is it practical is a much more challenging That's question. Because now it's balancing time and cost. Right. But, you know, when a client comes to you and says, hey, we want to build this big microservices project. Yeah. Right. Big red flag, right? That's not the goal. We just read a book on or, you know, uh, conference driven development, right? Right, right? Like I just attended a session on, you know, X and, uh, I, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to build that. Right. Right. No, it's, it's what problems are you trying to solve? A lot of my consulting, right? uh, lately has been answering the question, so is Blazor just a fad or should we like invest in that or, you know, right. that people are just basic fears or whatever. 
Speaking of laser and speaking of implementation, the, the, de- so on the, on the implementation side, cause oh, we've got this big demo in the course, right? Because people need to see yeah. how you get, how you're going to implement it. What does it really look like once you've done all the strategic design? And, uh, and to be very clear, Steve was definitely. <laughs> behind this demo like really really led the way on this demo and the ui of it is blazer nice yep yep it's all and we got to yeah and we got to benefit from docker because there's a lot of moving parts in there including RabbitMQ and some different things so for enabling the viewers to take the demo and just get it running they don't have to install the stuff they've just got all they have to install is docker Right. And mm-hmm. then boom, 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 boom. Everything will work together and they can debug through the application and, and get a better feel for how things work. And, um, you know, and again, calling back to how Steve is much more of an inventor than I am. Um, we also use some of his APIs from, uh, for, uh, repositories. Yep. Some of the open source projects, yeah, like API endpoints and uh, specification pattern with repository, which solves a lot of the problems that we had in yeah. our, our previous course. Uh, for instance, this what you're asking, like, what are things have changed? Well, one of them was how we were doing our repository implementation because we were just adding additional methods as needed every time a different query came along. Um, and that's, that's a, a, a code smell. That's a problem yeah. that a lot of people have seen. It's like it violates the open closed principle and single responsibility principle. Um, it turns out the specification pattern works really well to solve that problem. Um, and so I've, I've myself and, and with some great support from the community, I've got a GitHub repo for specification and that's being used in the course too. And it totally cleans up all that, all that repository stuff. So it's like nice, easy, easy to uh, add to it, extend it, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't become this spaghetti code mess that, Sometimes happen. I think I think I know exactly what you're talking about, and I did the same thing with my my uh, re- repository interface. There's another really good change from how we implemented the last one to the new one. Uh, for messaging, we wanted to use a message a way of message queue that was accessible or available to most people. So we used uh, the message queues queues that were built into SQL Server. That's what we did the first time yeah. around. Because that's that was works for us. This time around we've we've got RabbitMQ, which is so much easier. And I've had I had some experience in the past from that too. So, yeah, so the imp- I've never seen anyone use the built-in SQL Server message broker for a real app, but but a lot of people use RabbitMQ or they or they at least use it locally and then they use something in the cloud in production. So it's it's much closer to what, what devs are going to be working with in the real world. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the, the overall, it's, it's like a new course, but the basic concepts that we're teaching about domain driven design and strategic design and, and, uh, tactical design, those don't change. Uh, I, you know, the, even though we, we revised all of it because our perspective and our, our understanding has gotten a lot deeper. Um, but the demo app, is totally totally modernized cool. but it still has cute pictures of people's pets in uh, it and it's in hd now i think it was like 1024 by 768 before like you know the, oh, the, new format, the industry yeah. has moved on in terms of you know what's acceptable <laughs> video quality right suddenly you have four by three moments right it's scary <laughs> right. what the where did that come from yeah 
So it strikes me that really when we talk about domain, we're talking about what is the special thing about this business? Like where is the value proposition here that's making them want to have a piece of code in the first place? Definitely. Steve and I are both nodding our heads here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Nodding on an audio show. Let's go it out. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the big parts of strategic design is, you know, looking at the whole business and breaking it down into an understanding of different domains, different kinds, different, uh, different subdomains within Mm -hmm. the business. And key to that is identifying the core domain, the core one of those subdomains, you might call the core domain or the core subdomain, then you have, you know, uh, uh, supporting domains, right? The core domain is what really differentiates you. Your money maker. What makes you special, right? Supporting domains, you know, things that are, uh, still critical, um, and you want to, you still want to be in charge of how they work out. Then, then we have generic domains, which are uh, things that have been solved, you know, Shipping, already and it's generic billing, and communication. Logging, well, yeah, logging, yeah. uh, yeah, credit card management, yeah. things like that. And it's really interesting. I, um, so my friend, uh, Vlad Kononov is writing a book on domain driven design for O'Reilly and I tech review. So I've read through the whole thing and, um, he actually also had a chapter on, you know, what happens as your business evolves. The thing that was your core domain, somebody else might already be doing the same thing now. That's now that's maybe a little more generic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe you're changing your business a little bit to, you know, find something else that makes you special. And now all of a sudden these, you know, I, these different domains, their, their relationships change. Maybe you don't have, you know, you've got a new core domain or, you know, right. talking about how, um, like, like a company like Amazon, right? They were selling books, then they were selling everything. Then they had to build this, impl- this cloud implementation to support what they were doing. And then they're like, Oh, this is pretty good. We should, char- yeah. we should share this and charge money for it. Right. So they're right. right? They're, and- they're, they're, they're. Core domains kept changing. So if you were in the 80s and you told somebody in the future, like, there's going to be this bookstore and the entire world is going to run on their computers, it's going to be like, what? No, no way. That's not going to happen. But that's <laughs> basically what happened. I think that's what Egon said in Ghostbusters and we laughed at him then. I'm still uh-huh. laughing. And, and then they've opened up physical bookstores. That is yeah. insult to injury. That's, sorry. And, and, <laughs> and grocery stores too. Like yeah, it's just, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. Anyway. That's a whole other conversation about Amazon permeating all of the things. Uh, we could keep going. But I think <laughs> it, it does feel an awful lot Washington like Post. the modern DevOps story too of where do we provide customer value? Like I just like that the DDD and, and this and the DevOps movement aligns so nicely, nicely with this. That's what we focus mm. on is here's where the customer value lives. And that's what we make sure we're building ourselves because it's, it's our ultimately our asset and all of the rest, uh, you buy, you, you get elsewhere. And, and another really important piece of it is that you're letting your, you know, what the business problems that you're trying to solve, let them drive how you design it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than what many of us grew up doing was, des- you know, designing it based on how we're going to persist it in the database. Right. Right. But instead, 
like, don't worry, you know, don't worry about how it's going to get persisted. Let's make it easy to solve the business problem because we can always figure out how to persist it. Yeah. There are many solutions to that problem. Not one right way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to mention before we run out of time here that we also got a ton of feedback from readers and viewers um, of the course over the years. And we, we mm. read all of those comments. Some of them were like public in the discussion. A lot of them are like private to Pluralsight that we get to see. And we tried to apply as many uh, fixes or, or you know, new ideas or things that we got from our audience. Uh, and, and I think that helped a lot because we've also gotten a ton of positive feedback from the new course uh, since it's just gone live a couple mm. months ago. So we definitely appreciate everybody letting us know um, both the things they like and the things that we could do better uh, on, on this particular course mm. that we did. No, but it really, cool. it really deserved a second edition, you know, could modernize it and, and, and keep it going. Yeah. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. But I am, you know, I've been, when I had to come up with, uh, you know, your title for one of the DDD conferences and, you know, they just want a three word title. And because, you know, being self-employed, what is it? So somebody uh, who was running a conference came up with, for me, Serial DDD advocate. Mm, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that was funny. In other words, she's a little obsessed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very cool. That, but to the benefit of us all, Jules. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thanks. And thank you both for uh, being here and uh, talking to us about the latest and greatest. It's been really fun. Thank you. It's always great to. It's always nice to see your faces. Yeah, it's always great to be on the show. All right. And we'll see you. Nobody else gets to see your faces. It's just us. Yeah. Lucky it's you. New, new capability. We used to just all be staring at a wall. <laughs> but now we get to stare at a camera. That's a step up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, guys. We'll see you later. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.